the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, found in page 756, if you have one of the Bibles provided. Page 756, and Jeremiah chapter 2, just after the halfway point in the Bibles. Um, we're going to be looking in a, a few moments, particularly at verse 13 of Jeremiah chapter 2, but we're going to read uh, the first 22 verses of Jeremiah 2 now. Jeremiah was a prophet and he brought God's message to the nation of Judah. Who were Judah, you may ask? Well, following the death of the famous King Solomon, God's people, who up until then had been known as Israel, were divided. The ten northern tribes rebelled against King Solomon's son and they set up their own kingdom. And this kingdom continued to be known as Israel uh, but the two remaining tribes became known as Judah. And about a hundred years before Jeremiah's time, the northern kingdom of Israel had been wiped out. They'd been destroyed. And here in Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah is sent to Jerusalem, uh, which is the capital city of Judah, with a message for God's people. So Jeremiah 2, page 756, we'll read from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came in and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send the Keter and observe closely. See if there has been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. 
His towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Tafnate have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shehor? And why to Assyria to drink water from the river? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realise how evil and bitter it is when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree you lay down like a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt, wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. Amen. And we'll finish our reading there. It'll be helpful for you if you keep that passage open in front of you now as we come to focus in particularly on verse 13. Read it again. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How safe do you feel sitting in church this evening? I came across some statistics recently that suggested that church is actually one of the safest places that you can be. They went something like this. Don't stay at home because 17% of accidents occur there. Don't go out walking because 14% of accidents happen to pedestrians. Avoid travelling by air, rail or water because 16% of accidents involve these forms of transport. And so they went on. Yet apparently only 0.001% of deaths happen in worship services in church. And these are usually the result of a previous physical disorder. So, statistically speaking, you're pretty safe. But although you are in a safe place, statistically speaking, this verse from Jeremiah reminds you that in God's eyes, church isn't a safe place to be if what you hear has no effect. To come to church and to hear about Jesus is a great privilege, even to live in a country where this is so easily possible, is a great privilege. But it will also make us even more guilty before God if we don't respond to it. That's the reason God has sent Jeremiah to the people of Judah here in chapter 2. And we're going to look at his message tonight under three headings. And firstly, we're going to see the huge responsibility of knowing the gospel. The huge responsibility of knowing the gospel. How are we as Christians often seen by those around us today? Well, we're seen by some as sincere but wrong. Others see us as bumbling do-gooders. We're seen by some as dangerous fundamentalists. But one of the most persistent images of Christians today is that we're people who sit in our churches 
and condemn those on the outside. People who are always pointing the finger. Yet the Bible's fiercest criticism, its most stringent judgment, is actually for those inside the church. In this chapter, God has sent his prophet Jeremiah to proclaim a message of judgment. Nothing surprising about that, perhaps. But in verse 2, he doesn't send them to some debauched pagan city. He sends them to Jerusalem, the capital of God's chosen nation. He doesn't send them to the centres of the false religions and the cults. He sends them to the people of God. And what does he send Jeremiah to his own people with? Well, it's an astonishing message. It's so shocking that in verse 12, God calls in the heavens to be appalled. The word speaks of someone who's left paralysed by a sudden physical or psychological blow. God calls in the heavens to be shocked. The word translated shocked here comes from the word for hair. It's a picture of something that's so shocking that those who hear it are left with their hair standing on end. What is this astonishing, shocking, paralyzing, hair standing on end message? Well, it's like God's people have forsaken him and they've gone after other gods. Politically, they've done this as we see in verse 18 by putting their hope not in God but in making alliances with the pagan nations around them with Assyria and Egypt. And religiously, they've embraced the sex-fueled Baal worship as we see from verse 20 onwards. And the shocking thing about all this is not what they're doing but who's doing it. This It's the people of God. Look back at verse 13. My people have committed two evils. This isn't some pagan nation that doesn't know any better. These are God's people. They have access to his word. They've experienced his goodness and his love in the past. Yet they've rejected him. That's why God tells them here that they've committed two evils. For the nations around them to have been swallowed up in idolatry was wrong, yes. But it was only one evil. They will be punished for it. But by turning away from the light, by turning away from what they knew, what they had experienced to be true, God's people had committed a double evil. So they were twice as guilty as those who don't know any better. Twice as guilty because they knew the good news, but it didn't affect their lives. And this is a persistent message of the Bible. Again and again we come across this message. The guiltiest people before God in Northern Ireland this evening aren't the type of people Christians are often signing petitions against. The guiltiest people in our nation aren't even the terrorists. They're not the abusers. Though God does call all these things evil. 
that the guiltiest people before God in Northern Ireland tonight are those who have grown up in churches but rejected the gospel. Those who have heard about Jesus but never believed in him for themselves. Those who perhaps still sit in churches week in, week out, but they're not changed by what they hear. When Jesus was on earth, he said it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for cities which had seen his miracles but hadn't repented. More bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find that the city of Sodom was made up of people who were homosexual rapists. But it would be more bearable for them on the day of judgment than for people who had seen the power of Jesus shrugged their shoulders and said well that's okay for you but it's not really for me so sitting in church isn't safe if that sounds extreme to us perhaps it's because we've started to believe Satan's lies that God isn't that much different from us that listening to him isn't that big of a priority and most of all That the death of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners is just something we can take or leave. So those of us who sit in churches regularly. Some of us perhaps who can't even remember a time when we didn't. We need to pay particular attention to this warning. We need to examine ourselves. To see whether we're the people of God on the inside. As well as just in name. Because there will be nobody in hell more guilty than those who heard about Jesus but never repented. Young people, if you've been grown up being taught about Jesus by your parents, being brought to church, you've been given so much more than so many other young people your own age. Yet if you grew up not believing in Jesus, you'd be better off never having set foot in the church and never having heard his name. But it doesn't have to be like that. This warning from Jeremiah is so that those who know the gospel, those who know about Jesus only in their heads, might know him in their hearts. Our hope this evening is that 600 years after Jeremiah, another prophet came to the city of Jerusalem, like Jeremiah, And this other prophet preached against the outwardly religious people in his day. But he also went to the cross for them. Because this other prophet was Jesus Christ himself. And we read in the book of Acts how many of the priests, many of the religious leaders of the day, who had rejected him, they became obedient to the faith. We see Pharisees who are the super religious people. Pharisees like Paul turning and trusting in Jesus. The good news for many of us tonight is that Jesus didn't just come to save sinners. He came to save religious people. He didn't just come to save those out there. He came to save those in here. The huge responsibility of knowing the gospel Then secondly, 
we see the absolute horror of spiritual unfaithfulness. The absolute horror of spiritual unfaithfulness. The emphasis of our text, the one thing that the first part of verse 13 wants to stress, is who it is that has been forsaken. It's not just that they have forsaken me. The me actually comes at the start of this to emphasise it. Me, they have forsaken, it literally is. And Judah wasn't just in a privileged position because they had the truth while other people didn't. Judah was in a special relationship with God. It's a covenant relationship. They had committed themselves to God and he had committed himself to them. Yet by entering into these alliances with the pagan nations around them, Judah had broken this promise with God. And the form of chapter 2 here would have been instantly recognisable to those who first heard this message. Because it, it takes the form of a diplomatic document of the day. It's a type of letter that an earthly king of that time would have sent to a part of his empire if he heard they were rebelling against him. And the purpose of such a letter would have been to call the rebelling people back to himself so he wouldn't have to send the army in. And that standard form of letter would have called heaven and earth to witness which this chapter does in verse 12. It would state the case against them as we see here in verse 13. It would also point to their ingratitude for past benefits that the king had given them. And we, we see this reflected here from verse 5 and onwards. So in this chapter, God is calling his covenant people to account. The high king is sending out a warning. But although this takes the form of a, a standard letter, it's not some cold, automatic response. The covenant between Judah and between God wasn't just some detached diplomatic agreement, like it might be between two earthly nations. In fact, it's described as a marriage covenant. It was like a marriage. Judah is described in verse 2 as God's devoted bride. He was her loving husband, and she was completely devoted to him. Verse 2 says that she even followed him into the wilderness. Such was her love for him that she turned her back on all that was familiar in the country of Egypt, where they had been for hundreds of years. They turned her back on all that, and God's people followed him out into the wilderness, into a wild, uncultivated land. Verse 3 speaks of how he protected her. Anyone who laid a finger on the Lord's bride, on the people of God, would regret it. But he is the one she has now forsaken. God says, you've forsaken me. Me who once you would have followed anywhere. Me who protected you, who cared for you. But now the honeymoon's over. The devoted bride has been unfaithful to her husband. Not just once, but again and again and again. Not just secretly, but openly. Verse 20 says, On every high hill and under every spreading tree you lay down 
as a prostitute. One Bible commentator writing on this passage describes Judah as the restless wife to whom the bonds and burdens of true love were slavery and the lure of the forbidden irresistible. That's how the Bible pictures walking away from God. Whether it's because of the pull of actual sexual sin, like it was for many in Judah, or not, whatever the reason for walking away, it's still spiritual adultery. And it's horrible. It's horrible. Maybe there's someone here tonight and you're thinking about walking away from God. There's some sin or or idol or some priority that's becoming a bigger and bigger part of your life and nothing else seems to matter compared to it. But this is what it looks like to God and he won't stand for it. And all of us need to be in our guard against this because few Christians plan to fall into serious sin. It may be a gradual process. Verse 2 of this chapter speaks of the devotion of your youth. Maybe you can think back to your younger days. You were out of church, perhaps involved in lots of Christian meetings. Maybe even enthusiastic and excited. But that devotion has faded. Church may be somewhere you still go. But Jesus Christ isn't really a central part of your life. And that is what he demands. It wasn't that Judah, God's people, had completely forgotten about God. It wasn't that they'd completely shelved him and thought, we'll go after these foreign nations completely. They thought that they could serve God, but also take part in these pagan rituals. But he was no longer the centre of their world. They weren't giving him the unique place in their lives which he demanded. But no matter how quickly or slowly this thing can happen, it's still adultery. It's still grounds for divorce. So to turn our backs on God is spiritual adultery. But it's also described here as being sucked back into slavery. These people have been slaves in Egypt. Yeah, verse 6 reminds them that God had rescued them from that. But now in verse 18, where do they want to go back to? Of all the places, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to make political alliances with their old master. But any step back there is a step in the wrong direction. It's a step back towards slavery. God had redeemed Judah It set them free. She wasn't meant to be at the beck and call of nations around them. She was meant to be free. But now it's as if the people were holding out their wrists so that the chains could be put back on. They're stretching out their necks so they could be shackled again. Yet all the time they're saying, as in verse 31, We're free. We're free. Could that be anyone here this evening? You're a professing Christian. That is, you say you've been set free by Jesus Christ. Yet you're playing with some sin in your life. The lure of the forbidden seems irresistible. 
You think you're in control, yet each time you indulge it, you're being pulled a step or two back towards Egypt. You're letting yourself be chained tighter and tighter and tighter. But Jesus died so that you could be set free. Not so that you would still be at the beck and call of sin to do what it says. You have a new master now. Live as someone who is free. And Judah should have learnt this lesson from her sister nation Israel. A century before this, Israel had ignored God's warnings for the last time. They too had jumped in and out of bed with various surrounding nations and idols. They too thought they were free. But look at what had happened to them in verse 14. God asks, Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? The end of verse 15. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Israel have been wiped out. Her people were taken captive and ten of the famous twelve tribes of Israel were no more. Completely gone. And if God wouldn't spare them, people who are all over half the Bible, he's not going to spare us if we are unfaithful to him. Or if we never trust in him in the first place. Let's not kid ourselves that somehow we will be the exception. So tonight, our God, through his prophet Jeremiah, and even more so through his greater prophet Jesus Christ, calls us to renew our commitment to him, to renew our marriage vows, as it were, to him. He calls you to stop any thought of turning your back on him. The absolute horror of spiritual unfaithfulness. Well then thirdly and finally we see the utter insanity of abandoning Jesus. The utter insanity of abandoning Jesus. The second half of our verse shows that forsaking God isn't just horrible. It isn't just dangerous for us. It also makes absolutely no sense. Look at what it says the people were doing in verse 13. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Well then, as now, a reliable water supply was obviously of huge importance. And two different potential water supplies of the day are pictured here. The first is a fountain of living water, a source of clear, pure water, flowing freshly from an underground stream or an underground source. But what would the farmers do if they had no such spring? Well, the alternative was a painstaking process of excavating a cavity in the limestone rock. They'd dig it with a narrow neck going down to a big lower cavity. And in this lower reservoir, which would be lined with lime-based plaster. During the rainy season, it would rain, and hopefully, hopefully, this man-made cistern would collect water. Yet both the, the plaster that they lined it with and the rocks themselves were prone 
to cracking, letting the precious water seep out. And even if the water was still there, it would be full of worms and taste vile. In the 1800s, these cisterns were still being used, and one missionary in Syria and Palestine who experienced them writes about them, and he says, Who but a fool or one gone mad in love of filth would exchange the sweet, wholesome stream of a living fountain for such an uncertain compound of nastiness and vermin? Nastiness and vermin. Doesn't sound that attractive, does it? But that was what Judah were doing. They had this fountain of living water. They had tasted and seen that God was good. Verse 7 tells how he had brought them into a plentiful land to enjoy its good things. Yet they were going to give this up for what at best would be absolutely stinking water. It would be absolute madness to walk away from such a fountain. But that's what Judah were doing. And it's not even that they were choosing an unreliable water source over a reliable one. Look at the verse again. These cisterns have to be dug out. You have to cut through the rock. It takes sweat. It takes effort. It takes tears. And what you have to show for it at the end? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Could that be a description of your life this evening? You're trying to struggle through life alone. You're not drinking at the fountain of living water. You're trying to make it by yourself. You're putting all your effort into it. But you're getting nowhere. Jesus comes to you tonight and he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is life. Stop trying to dig through solid rock. Come and drink from the fountain. It won't mean that your life will suddenly become easy. But it will become worthwhile. You'll be living for something bigger than yourself or your family. It won't mean that all your struggles will be over. But it will mean that you're no longer facing them on your own. Stop trying to dig through the rock. Jesus offers you living water. And the worst thing about these cisterns, it wasn't even the effort that it took to make them, but the worst thing was that according to one description, in the hour of need, they utterly fail. In the hour of need, they utterly fail. Imagine a farmer coming to one of these cisterns near the start of the dry season. There's still months and months to go before it will rain again. And he starts to lower down a bucket. It gets to about the place where the bucket should be hitting the water, but there's nothing. And now with his heart suddenly in his mouth, he, he keeps on lowering it, hoping that the worst hasn't happened. Until eventually the bucket slides to a standstill in the mud at the bottom. All the precious water has seeped out. He's been putting his hope. He's been relying on a broken cistern. He's put all his hope in it. And it's let him down. (coughs) What will you put your hope in for the dry seasons 
in your life. If you're putting your hope in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, then that thing will let you down. Jeremiah warns you that you're hoping in a broken cistern. When the dry season comes in your life, whatever you're hoping in will fail you if it's not Jesus. Whether it's another person, your family, your reputation, your job, your money, it won't be any use to you when it comes to the crunch. And yes, it might look attractive now. It doesn't look broken from where you're standing. It may even seem worth risking everything for. But in your moment of need, when you're dying of thirst, it won't be there for you. It won't be able to satisfy. Yeah, this verse doesn't just warn us of the dangers of backsliding. It also helps us understand this world that we live in. Because it reminds us that we live in a world of people who are thirsting for something more. They're seeking for something that can quench their deepest thirsts for belonging, for pleasure, for significance, for satisfaction. But they're looking in all the wrong places. They're trying to drink from broken cisterns. If you go into a newsagent or a supermarket and you look at the magazine section, you'll see the sort of things that people are chasing after to try and satisfy their thirsts. The ideal home, the perfect body, the latest technology, the greatest business, the pinnacle of fame or sporting excellence. People chase after these things, but they're all broken cisterns. The world thinks that Jesus wants to stop them satisfying their thirsts. Maybe you think that this evening. You think that Jesus wants to stop you satisfying these deep thirsts in your life. But in fact, he's offering you living water. He's offering you the only thing that can really satisfy your thirsts. Yeah, those around us are saying, I don't want the fountain. I want to drink this muck at the bottom of the cistern. There once was a woman who had sought to satisfy her thirsts in a string of relationships. But it hadn't brought her any satisfaction. In fact, it even led to her being shunned by others in her community. But one day as she was standing by a well in the heat of the day, she met a man who wasn't like any of the other men she'd ever met before. And he offered her living water. He told her, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. A short time later, at a religious feast, which people had come to in their search for significance, searching for it in religion, the same man stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And today, Jesus still offers living water. And through us, he offers it to this world around us. What an encouragement this is for us to speak to people about him. Because we don't have to go out and try and make people thirsty. They already are. But they're trying to drink from broken cisterns. Cisterns which can never satisfy them. And many of them already realise this. Even if they won't admit it. And we don't have to go out and tell them that they need to stop thirsting. 
The problem isn't with their thirst, but with how they're trying to satisfy it. So are we involved in the lives of the people around us who are most obviously thirsting? Perhaps whom the rest of society looks down on, like they did with this woman at the well. Are we prepared to cross cultural and social barriers like Jesus did? The opportunities are all around us. So we've seen tonight the huge responsibility of knowing the gospel. The absolute horror of spiritual unfaithfulness. And the utter insanity of abandoning Jesus. By God's grace, if we believe in Jesus, we have drunk from the fountain of living water. May Jeremiah's warning help us see the folly it would be to try and replace that with broken cisterns. And may we live for the day, pictured at the end of the Bible, when God says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life, without payment. Amen. Well, we'll sing.